this is Joy. And this is Claire. And this is Joy and Claire. A weekly podcast talk show about the things that bring us together. Make us happy. Make us whole. Make us human. Hey guys, this is Joy. And this is Claire. And this is Joy and Claire. And Ryan. And Ryan. Hey, Ryan. Hey, Ryan. Today, we are so excited to have Ryan Venturelli on the podcast. Ryan is about to graduate with her PhD. Um, she studies climate change through the last 11,000 years. Just through the last 11,000. Just, I mean, <laughs> just you know. a mere 11K. I, globally speaking, that's like not that long. Uh-huh. Specifically, she focuses on how the Antarctic ice sheet has changed in the past so that we can put current and future changes into context. So we're excited to welcome Ryan. We have talked a lot about climate change on the podcast recently, kind of more from the lens of like your carbon footprint. And, you know, we had um, a guest back in January, which feels like 100 years ago, to talk about regenerative agriculture a little bit. And we are just really excited to dig into the science of climate change. And I say that completely unironically because I am really excited about it, even though it sounds kind of nerdy. Joy is raising her hand. I'm raising my hand, too, because I also want to make sure everybody (laughs) knows that Ryan is a listener and you reached out. Well, I hope you're a listener. <laughs> I'm like just assuming you're a listener. I mean, you reached out to us because you listened to one of our shows where we're like, we want to talk about this. So you reached out, you graciously offered your time. So tell our listeners a little bit about you and what you study. Cool. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm a big fan of the show. I've been listening back since the Girls Gone Wad days. Wow. So yes, long time listener, first time caller. <laughs> first time podcaster. <laughs> But yeah, I've been really into how much you ladies have been posting about climate change and talking about climate change. And I know it's especially important to you these days, given that you've just experienced some really big wildfires in Colorado. So when I saw you posting about climate change, I thought it would be cool to reach out and see if you wanted to have a conversation um, about other aspects of the climate system and just how we scientists studying these kind of things do what we do so that it might put things into context for people who who don't necessarily think about the climate system or the earth system as much as someone doing their PhD on that might. Right. As much as you live and breathe those things. Which is so cool. And Claire and I mentioned, I think a couple episodes ago, where we love that you've chosen such a specific thing to study. And is there anything that like brought you to that specific thing? Like what made you be like, hey, I want to study this specific thing? Yeah. So I grew up in Indiana, which is like one of the least affected places in the world by climate change objectively speaking. But I did an undergrad degree in geology. And that was kind of like the first time I started to learn about basically like the length of the geologic record and how much history of the earth we can we can learn about through basically reading the rocks. So that that led me to an interest in using marine archives. So thinking about how we can tell things about the past Earth through deposits from the seafloor. So we can basically take these big, long cores from the ocean and work back in time through the layers in in the sediments or basically the mud. We can basically read this like 
climate book of the earth from these deposits. So that was where I wanted to focus my graduate research. So I did, I did a master's in central Indiana at Indiana State University on using basically the shells that are deposited on the seafloor to tell us about past climate change. And then that led me to the program I'm in now at the University of South Florida's College of Marine Science, where I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I knew that I wanted to be in some aspect of marine science, and I knew I wanted to continue to pursue higher education. So I found USF, and the professor that I'm working with now had some really cool projects to work on, one of which was in Antarctica. So I I jumped on that opportunity, and that was kind of how I got into the work that I do now, reconstructing Antarctic ice sheet change. And it's a really cool, it's, it's really cool to study Antarctica from Florida, because if Antarctica melts, Florida will be one of the most at-risk at places in the world. 20 of the 30 top cities most, effect, most affected by sea level rise are in Florida, and the Antarctic ice sheet collectively holds about 56 meters of sea level equivalent ice. Now, it would be completely ca- catastrophic if that whole thing melted, and that's not a very likely scenario. Scenario, But a portion of, of that ice is likely to be lost due to climate change. And my work studying how ice has been lost in the past and, and what caused ice loss in the past and how our Earth system has had recovered from that is really useful for constraining our predictions of of the changes to come. Yeah. I wanted to say like, let's just get right into the meat of that question of, you know, I think a couple of weeks ago, we talked a little bit about climate change and Joy was asking, you know, what are people, what are people who don't quote unquote believe in climate change? Like what do those people not believe? And typically what I've found and definitely, you know, add your own input to this is that people will say, well, yeah, the climate is changing, but that's all part of the natural cycles of the earth. We've gone through many cycles within the earth's history. We're just experiencing another one of those. The, the other thing that I think about what you just said, Claire, is like, you know how they show the hottest day and they're like, oh, we broke a record. The last time it was this hot was in 1952. And so everyone's like, see, it was hot back then too. You know what I mean? That's, I just wanted to add that. Yeah. And so there's this as humans, and especially as like 21st century humans, we have this really super limited capacity to understand what the history of the earth really means in our lifespan and like how that contributes, you know, so we're you might say, yeah, there have been warming and cooling cycles throughout the history of the earth. That typically doesn't mean like since 1985, we have undergone another heating cycle. So I would just love for you to explain your perspective on that. And then, you know, if when you hear that, what is your answer to that sort of objection to human caused climate change theories? Yeah. So I think, I think you're right that the biggest argument against the changes we're experiencing in the modern times is that people will often say, well, climate has always changed. It was hotter millions of years ago. Ice has grown and shrank. Carbon dioxide has increased and decreased throughout Earth's history. And all of those things are true, but they don't replace the fact that the changes we're experiencing now are happening at 
a much different rate than they have in Earth's history. And that rate and and also the forcings and feedbacks of modern climate change are really important. And what do those words what do those words mean? Forcings for, and feedbacks. Forcings and feedbacks. So a forcing is the thing that sets the change in motion. If you think of a ball rolling down a hill, um, it's the thing that pushes the ball. And a feedback is basically the way that the ball rolls down the hill and what happens to it at the bottom. Does it keep going? Um, Does it run into something and stop? Does it run into something and reverse? And those things can both accelerate the changes set in motion by the forcing, or they can counteract the forcing set in motion. So today, we're experiencing climate change that is happening because of mostly increased fossil fossil fuel emissions. And what that means is that we're putting a lot more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere than has historically been put into Earth's atmosphere. And at rates much faster than would normally happen if not for us physically pulling oil out of the ground and burning it. That in itself makes the types of changes we're experiencing today much different than the the things that normal climate deniers will tell you, well, the earth has always changed. Has there ever been scientific data to back up these climate change deniers? What kind of data do they present? And let's not get too much into that, but do they present it with you, to you? This is really interesting. There are a lot of groups that will use scientific studies, in qu- in air quotes, sca- scare quotes, actually, um, that are like... Scare quotes. I've never heard that before. <laughs> Scary. Scare quotes. Yeah. Yeah. So the, these groups will use data funded by studies with studies funded by, say, oil companies. Yep. So you always have to look at where they're getting their money to do the study. Yep. That makes so much sense. So they have they have ulterior motives, right? To to prove that their oil that fossil fuel burning isn't causing this change or that the change we're seeing today is much like what we saw in the past. But of course, it, it's important that the data we use to assess these changes are collected objectively and, and not with any other profits in mind. As an aside, a common um, misconception of like climate scientists that we're making some crazy profits off of the research that we do, but we're not. <laughs> <laughs> Not the case. Not not the case. So tell us a little bit about your specific research and what you have found. And I would also be curious to know how the way you think about your personal role in climate change has changed. Yeah, that's a great question. So my work specifically uses the dirt that is underneath the Antarctic ice sheet. And of course, this this dirt is very hard to collect. We, We melt these big holes in the ice sheet and deploy instruments through the ice to collect this dirt at the base of the ice. Specifically, the site that I worked at is beneath about two and a half Empire State buildings of ice. So that's a lot of ice. What? <laughs> How do you I get love, I love when people describe things by like building sizes. <laughs> okay. Oh my God. My first follow-up question is, what do you use to melt it? And my second follow-up question is, have you ever touched a penguin? <laughs> So because of the Antarctic Treaty, we're not allowed to touch, <laughs> to touch the penguins. Got it. Um, I have seen them. They smell really bad. Forgive them. They're, they're also really cute. Would 15 out of 10 take one as a pet? 
if I wouldn't be in jail for the rest of my life. Okay, so how do we access dirt at the base of the ice sheet? We use basically a glorified hot water garden hose. It's it's much more complicated than that, but it it looks like a garden hose. We use basically high pressure, really hot water to melt a hole. We just continuously lower the hose into the hole as we melt it. So it's it's a process, but in addition to just simply melting the hole to collect dirt, there's this whole like microscopic microbial ecosystem that lives underneath the Antarctic ice sheet. So bacteria and viruses that survive in really extreme cold environments. And that's exciting for a whole other avenue of research that I'm not involved in, like understanding how life may happen on other planets. But my work specifically being a dirt person, we we just melt this hole with the garden hose and we deploy this big tube through that hole and drive it into the dirt beneath the ice sheet and pull up a tube of dirt to study. I love this. And I know that this is like not actually related to the conclusions of your research, but I just find it fascinating to hear like, so you go to Antarctica. What happens when you get there? (laughs) So we take this really big hose and then we have like this giant tube. I'm loving this. Okay. So keep talking about your research. I will stop asking like silly detail questions. (laughs) Okay, I love it. Um, I could talk about the details all day. So I look at the chemical signatures of this dirt to tell us how old it is, where different nutrients and portions of that sediment or of that dirt came from, and how it's being used and moved around in the subglacial environment. So what's happening to these nutrients once they get into the dirt underlying the ice sheet? And the way that the subglacial environment works is that it's isolated from everything else going on on Earth. So it's it's completely cut off from the atmosphere. The only way that we can get new stuff into the subglacial environment is if it's brought there by the ocean. And the only way for the ocean to communicate with the dirt underlying the ice sheet is for the ice sheet to get smaller and then get bigger over the deposited material. So what I'm really studying is basically ice-ocean interaction or how the ice sheet was once smaller and then grew to where it is today so that we can understand both the timing of when this happened and compare it to what was going on with the climate system at that time and, and basically determine what makes an ice sheet smaller and what makes it grow again. Okay, so quickly before we go into the rest of our questions, we have to take a quick break and talk about our sponsor. I'm so proud of myself for remembering because we love our sponsor, but we really love climate change. And I was worried we were going to get too excited and totally forget. <laughs> so <laughs> we are excited to have this episode sponsored by Blue Blocks, our favorite blue light blocking glasses. The one and only. The one and only. You guys can get a pair of your blue light blocking glasses. Joy just put hers on. They have lenses for nighttime, lenses for daytime. You can send in your own frames if you want, and they'll fill them with blue light blocking lenses. You can get prescription lenses in there if you need them. They have kid sizes. And when you purchase a pair of Blue Blocks glasses, they will donate a pair to someone in need through their nonprofit partner. So use the discount code JOY, get yourself a pair of blue light glasses, support the podcast, support your eyeballs, and thank you for supporting the brands that support our show. Thank you. We're back. We didn't go anywhere. 
but we're back. <laughs> Ryan did. She ran across the room and came back with her water glass. How are people using your research and why are the questions that you are asking important to our understanding of climate change? Okay. This is a great question. So you mentioned earlier that I study the past 11,000 years. This is a time in Earth's history that things going on on, on Earth are pretty similar to what was going on, what's going on now, except for most of that time, there wasn't a modern society living on coasts, burning fossil fuel, and really altering our system. So it's, it's the last time in Earth's history where all of Earth's land masses. So all the continents were in the same place that they are today. We have kind of the same types of plants and animals that we have today. There's ice in Greenland and, and Antarctica like there is today. So we can we can use the the timing or the things that are happening on Earth to kind of understand the the climate system at its last natural state before humans came and messed everything up. So by studying how the ice has changed throughout that period, we can start to get an idea of the long-term natural changes that we would expect to see without any of the crazy stuff that humans have done. It allows us to, to have a baseline. That baseline is really useful because one of the biggest uncertainties in, in projecting future change and in really getting at what are we going to do when we really mess this system up comes from not having a long-term record of understanding basically what are the natural processes, how long do they last, what is this natural variability. So there's never been a time where we've been to this point where you've been able to say, hey guys, if you get to this point, here's what's going to happen. Yeah, we've only been observing for a very short observational record. We've only developed the technologies to, you know, look at the full ice sheet, both from the ground and from space for a few decades. So when you put that into the billions of year context of Earth's history or millions of year context of ice history, it's really just a blip in time. So we don't really know how these systems work or how we expect them to react to change. So my work extending into the geologic past gives us an idea of kind of a longer term record of that. And how that will be used by other people, hopefully, is that they can use this as basically a target to fit a model to. So we we use there's this there's this principle in in geology that the present is the key to the past. So the processes that are acting on Earth today are the same that we would expect to be acting on Earth millions of years ago, thousands of years ago. Similarly, the processes that have occurred from the past to now are the same types of processes that we would expect to happen in the future. Now, of course, the, the changes that we would see are going to be accelerated by human activity. But how much that acceleration might happen is best constrained by adding in this full long record. So hopefully my work with basically ice mass loss will allow us to project how much ice mass loss will happen in the future and how fast or how slow we can expect that 
response to happen. So for the day-to-day person listening to this, because I don't, I'm not going to count out that there are no other climate scientists listening to this episode. I hope deeply that there are, but I think the majority (laughs) of people listening are not in that. What have you taken away as just like a human living her life that you feel like your view on climate change or on your own personal habits has either become more urgent or maybe less urgent, or you realize that actually whether or not I compost my toilet paper rolls doesn't actually matter. Or, you know, I should get an electric car. I should just, you know, walk around Antarctica for the rest of my life. Like what are the takeaways that you have felt? And like, what are the changes that you personally have felt compelled to make, if if any? So I think you've talked about it in a previous episode that it can be really overwhelming when feeling like we have this problem and we all have to do all of these big things to change it. And it's our individual responsibility to do that. And I think that that is a really scary way to think about things. But I I like to think about things in, in a basically smaller way. I think my work with geology and in and, and Antarctica has shown me that we don't need a lot of the extra things that we have in life. And I'm, I'm not saying this as like, I'm altering my life and becoming a crazy minimalist or anything, but I don't need to order five different Amazon packages to be delivered this week. Like I can go to a local store and pick something up. I don't need to drive my car every day. If there are things around town that I can ride my bike to, I'll go do that. Small things like that to reduce my individual carbon footprint, I think are really important. There's a trend in climate science where a lot of scientists are choosing to not fly or to fly less. And I think that that is a really noble adjustment to make to your own personal travel patterns. And I I would like to eventually say that I'm doing that not caused by COVID, but that's an adjustment I think is Hey, congratulations, everyone. We've all reduced our carbon footprint by not flying anywhere. Thank you for saving the planet slash being literally not able to go anywhere. (laughs) How urgent do you feel the threat of, you know, the Antarctic ice sheet melting or, you know, other similar seemingly catastrophic results? Like how imminent is that threat from your scientific perspective? Yeah, because we see like documentaries of like warning us, but I think the problem is it's not in front of our face. So we need someone who's like working with us day in and day out to be like, here's what's really going on, guys. Yeah. So I'd say, well, I don't want to scare anyone, but it's, it's pretty serious. I don't think you should say, I don't think you should, should worry about scaring because I think we need to take this seriously. And I think the pro, yeah, the time has I, come. Yeah, I think the problem, the time has come. I think the problem is that we're kind of tiptoeing around it and it's like, we're not going to panic, but we also need to take this seriously. Yeah. So it's serious. The changes of ice loss will be felt in coastal cities within our lifetime. They're already being felt in terms of increasing flooding in low-lying cities like Miami. I just saw some crazy videos of the passing tropical storm showing all of the flooding going on there. But I I think for your listeners who aren't specifically in coastal cities in low-lying areas like like I am, I think there are ways that we can feel the effects of climate change in all of our backyards, whether you're experiencing an increase in drought and wildfire in California and Colorado, changes to your precipitation patterns in the Midwest. I know farmers are really feeling 
feeling that and taking a hit because of that. Changes in basically like the lobster fishery. So because the ocean temperature and and conditions are changing different important fishes are moving where they live Um, we talked about this last week i was talking about like kelp regenerative farming and somebody sent us a comment that was like only claire can turn a question about eggs into a discussion about how the lobsters are being affected by climate change i was like i've never this is the best compliment anyone's ever given me (laughs) but it's so true right but like all those little things yeah i think If you look at them, I think one thing that, at least for me, I sometimes maybe not like calm myself down with, but that by the fact that I know that climate is so long term, sometimes I try to like tell myself that like, you know, these these changes that I even personally can attest to having lived in the same zip code pretty much my whole life and seeing the weather patterns vividly change in my lifetime, I can sometimes just flip that. And on the other side of the coin and be like, yeah, but that's only 30 years. But I think that when you look at every single thing around the world and conglomerate that of like, but yeah, but it's not just Boulder County zip code. It's the last 30 years around the world. And when these these little things that you wouldn't necessarily connect, like drought and wildfires and precipitation changes and lobster fisheries you know, struggling. But when you look at them all through the, you know, kind of in that category, it does become alarming. Yeah. And when every year is becoming the warmest year on record, that's when it becomes very apparent. Have you seen the data visualization called climate stripes or warming stripes? I'll send it Mm -mm. to you via email after this. Yeah. Um, We'll link it in the show notes. it's, It's really cool. It's this visualization of basically the temperature anomaly or how much warmer it is than normal throughout our entire instrumental record. And you can generate your own climate stripe record for your lifetime or where you live or any certain amount of time that you you want to look at it's like your own grade you get to like grade yourself it's it's more just like looking how much you change from like blue being cold to red being warm it looks like a panic thermometer (laughs) oh okay okay great I think this is like one of the best ways to visualize what's going on in temperature space. So like how much warmer it really is. So I think the thing that I want to repeat from the beginning is it's not in front of our face. And it also just speaking for myself, I get really overwhelmed because this feels like such an enormous problem. If you think about the earth of like how we're going to undo all this damage. It just feels so overwhelming. And then I see things on documentaries with, you know, polar bears not having a place to sit. <laughs> and it like, right? like depresses did both, me. Did you guys both watch the most recent David Attenborough one? No, like, I can't. I can't cause like, no, I will. But like, these are the things that hurt my heart and I like emotionally can't take it, but I know I should watch it. Like that's the story of my life. I mean, he does present it in a very soothing voice. So that helps. Yeah. (laughs) That's why they got him to do it. Nature just breaks my heart. And so, yeah, those are the things where I feel like we need to start taking it seriously. But taking it seriously doesn't mean that we're like all of a sudden serious and like it's not overtaking our life. Exactly. I think with all big lifestyle changes, you have to do things a little bit. And one day at a time, nothing, we can't solve this problem overnight. But I think that our collective actions can really make a difference. And a a lot of that is not 
at an individual level, right? It's at, you know, an, a national level. What will our country do? What will our industries do? What adjustments will big enterprises make to help the world? <laughs> So it's not on any individual shoulders, but all of our collective actions can help. And, you know, things like not driving as much, not flying as much, eating a vegetarian diet one day a week. Like they, there have been a lot of studies looking into how these small, small actions can really cut down on an individual's carbon, carbon footprint. And those are, I think when, when a lot of people do those things, those are important, but you don't have to do all of them and you don't have to do all of them all the time. It's just doing what you can while you can. So in the climate scientist community, I know that this isn't necessarily directly related to your research, but I have a feeling you, you know, you live in that world and probably absorb a lot of it. What are some of the things that people are talking about or pushing for from a policy level? Rejoining the Paris Agreement. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) To be completely honest, many of us in the, and I'm not speaking for everyone, but climate science and climate policy, as I'm sure you know, Claire, are can be pretty different um, because there there become some complications as a scientist when you want to advocate for certain causes or, or certain things because it can make you look not objective. And it's really important to stay objective when looking at the type of data that we're working with. So I, I do know that quite a lot of people stay out of the advocacy and policy world, but there are there are some really great scientists who are also bridging that gap and, and doing both. So it's possible that was kind of a tangent, but hopefully that. No, that makes her. sense. And I think, you know, I know that hopefully, you know, climate policy, people look to climate science, but it doesn't necessarily have to go both ways. Like you shouldn't have to look to climate policy. You know, it, if you were being informed by climate policy, it wouldn't be science anymore. It would yeah. be analysis. <laughs> and there, I mean, there are a lot of scientists who are involved in the IPCC. Do you know what that is? No. So the IPCC is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It's basically an organization body by the United Nations for assessing the science related to climate change. And that's everything from looking at how climate has changed in the past to understanding how modern ice sheets are changing to understanding the increased frequency in in wildfires to understanding ecological data and pooling all of those scientists together to make recommendations for how we can how we can change things and they do publish public facing reports that can be you know, read by someone who's interested, but not necessarily a scientist, so that you can kind of understand the up-to-date scientific knowledge of of what's going on with the climate. So that that's another way I think that the climate science community is involved in making recommendations and, and getting involved in policy and things. What are some of your favorite places to point non-scientists to do some of their own research for climate topics without having to have a PhD in climate science to understand what the heck they're reading. <laughs> um, so the the warming stripes, I think 
would be my first place just because I think it's it's such a, a beautiful representation of the data and just seeing how that change has gone from red to blue or blue to red throughout our lifetimes is a, a great visualization of, of what's going on. As Claire likes to call it the panic stripe. The panic <laughs> thermometer. The so panic for, thermometer. for folks listening, we will link to this in the show notes, but you can go to showyourstripes.info. That's the link. And you can select your region. You can select your date range. You can kind of customize your little panic thermometer. Panic thermometer and scare quotes is my takeaway. And I'm really just really adding to people's doom scroll with this yeah, episode. It's great. Okay, so the warming stripes and then what else? Like are there publications that you like? Are there magazines? Are there blogs? Are there podcasts? What do you feel, you know, if you're for your friends and family who are not as deep into it as you are and they come to you and they're like, I really want to learn more about climate change, what would you tell them? Yeah, so NASA has some great resources on there. It's like nasa.gov forward slash resources, but they have a whole section on global climate change, vital signs of, of the planet that's really useful. They do a lot with visualizing data and and summarizing things into a really digestible format for the general public. To be honest, don't really read or don't really listen to climate focused podcasts because that's kind of where I that's try fair. to draw the line between my my work and my life. But there are a lot of really great books that I like to point people to if you're a someone who likes to read like novel sized books. So Hope Jaron wrote this this book recently called The Story of More, How We Got to Climate Change and Where We Go From Here. She is a climate scientist. Um, she works with plants, but it's a really great way of putting things into a format that everyone can understand and everyone can understand the history of the problem. And what I really like is that it provides solutions. So like Joy was saying, a lot of people get really overwhelmed by this big problem because we don't know what to do next. But I think books and outlets that provide solutions can be really helpful and make us feel more an active player in this problem that we're all going to see the effects of in our lifetime. So we had one question that I feel like we talked about a little bit and maybe we we can both kind of give an input on this. Somebody wrote in and said, you know, I'm worried about climate change and I want to know where to start, but I don't have unlimited resources. Where should I be focusing my efforts? You know, should I be using, doing reusable shopping bags? Should I be, you know, getting more sustainable cosmetics? Should I, whatever the, you know, endless small changes you can make. And I know we talked a little bit about the changes that you've made and, you know, kind of like the drive less, fly less. What are your favorite small changes that you've made? Because my opinion is sort of like, find the small change that is the easiest and most long-term for you to do. And that's the yeah, best like, one. Yeah, like what's the priority? What's yeah, the priority Well, one? and also like, what's the easiest one for you to do? Pick that one because that's going to be the one that you can stick with and do the, mo- the most thoroughly. Don't give yourself this like, oh, I'm going to turn my entire kitchen into plastic free. And now next thing you know, you just spent $400 on glass Tupperware that you hate. <laughs> you know, I'm speaking from experience. <laughs> But I hate it's just like clinks on everything it chips. So I I think I'd rather ask what have you done? Like what small things have you done in your house where you're like, I wouldn't maybe have not thought about chewable toothpaste tablets, but I love them or you know, whatever those little things are for you. So I think number one, my my biggest adjustment is driving less. And I wouldn't 
recommend this to someone who hates riding a bike because that's not something that's going to be a sustainable change. But me personally, I can't not smile while I'm riding my bike and it gets me where I want to go without burning any fossil fuel. So that's really cool for someone who, you know, can't go out and buy a new electric car because that's a pretty big investment. A bike or walking places or carpooling is a relatively easy adjustment to make. I think food waste is a really big and easy change. Reducing your food waste um, is an easy change. So this is something both forced by, you know, being on like a fixed student income and not wanting to buy a bunch of food that I'm going to throw out, but also knowing that we don't need to buy a bunch of things that we're not going to use. Um, It's a small change I've made that just like makes me feel better about my contribution to using less or doing less. Maybe go to the grocery store twice a week instead of once a week and then only buy a small amount of things at once that you know you're going to use, things like that. And of course, like with any of these changes, you're going to slip up you're going to like maybe one day use a plastic water bottle and not your reusable water bottle or you're going to have like an apple that goes bad but you can't beat yourself up about that you just have to make these small changes or commit to a small change and and work and do your best it's just like making it a change to your your diet or your exercise routine, like you're not going to do something that you hate if it doesn't make you feel good and it's not going to be a sustainable change. So I, I definitely agree with you, Claire, just like pick one thing that means something to you that you know you can accomplish and start there and see, see where it leads you. Um, maybe make a goal of growing that to two things or three things in a couple of months. I think that's a good approach. One of my favorite things that when we talked to Dr. Mark Ritchie back in January, who was the the regenerative agriculture guy, he had said, plant a garden. And that I think was such a cool piece of advice because it like, it really connects you with your seasons and with your climate in your area and with the seasonal changes and with your weather. And it will give you your own baseline, like what you're talking about to remember like, man, we didn't have this problem with watering 10 years ago and now we do or like, you know, and I'll give, if you have kids, they'll be able to think back and think when I was a kid, we used to not have to, you know, irrigate all the time and now we do or whatever the case may be for that. And I just loved that because it is such a good way to like really connect with your hyper local, AKA your own yard ecosystem and kind of just start there. And like, I think to what Joy was saying earlier, it can feel so overwhelming to think, you know, my personal changes are what's responsible for the Antarctic ice sheet melting. And it's kind of that thought process of like a single raindrop never thinks itself the cause of the flood. I had a Arctic ecology professor in college who was like, that was his whole, like his thesis statement for his whole teaching philosophy was like, you, yeah, you're right. And you're wrong. Like it's not you, but it's not, not you. And so how can we embody that and how can we use that to motivate us and rather than like paralyze us in panic? 
Wow. All right. So I'm inspired again. I feel like every time I have a conversation like this, it's like, okay, I gotta just keep thinking about these things because they do make a difference. And that's the problem is we think it's kind of like voting. You think, oh, it doesn't matter if I vote. Well, it's like if everyone thinks that way, nothing's going to get done. So everybody has to do something. All right. So Ryan, thank you so much for your time. This was lovely. Did you have a fun time on our podcast? Yes. (laughs) Was it everything you thought of and more? It's just like (laughs) hanging out with my friends. (laughs) <laughs> confirmed that's what confirmed. we're confirmed <laughs> all right guys well, well don't you, forget to please go to blueblocks b-l-u-b-l-o-x.com discount code is joy ryan is there anywhere where folks can look up your research or follow along with your research if they are interested in learning more about what you're doing i have an instagram people can look at me there and my like personal website is shared in the bio it's rad underscore Venturelli, I share a lot of things about like my day to day in the lab. Oh, so cool. if people are interested in, in looking at the life of a scientist, they can find me there. Awesome. And we will share your website in the show notes. So thank you again for coming on. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise. And thank you everyone for listening. Ryan, stay on the line. And we will talk to you guys next week. Bye, guys. Bye. <laughs>